0: Would you join me as we come before our Holy Father as a church and ask his blessings upon his, uh, the ministry of the gospel around the world, as well as through some other churches that we are partnered with and through our church. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the privilege of coming before a holy God, and yet we as sinful and less than perfectly holy people... Can be in your presence you tell us in the bible because of the work of your son jesus christ on our behalf And so depending on him and rejoicing in him We come before you a holy god and ask for your blessings on the ministry of the gospel around the world As we gather this Afternoon, right after the service, to think about our friends in Boma, South Sudan, and prepare to uh, hopefully send another team there from our church, which we've been able to do in the past and look forward to doing again. We thank you for the ministry of SEA partners uh, working in that remote corner of South Sudan uh, amongst some of the poorest and most forgotten and rural people in the world. We pray for the for your blessing upon the work there in Boma um, this morning, which for them is is this late afternoon evening right now. Especially the work uh, to develop land and cultivate food for families to be able to sustain themselves in a rural area where aid is very hit and miss and it's very difficult to survive. We pray, Father God, for the, for the continued development of sustainable farming and food for the people there to be able to live and thrive. We pray for uh, the growth and the spread of the gospel in that community, and pray, Father God, that even from from our own church, you would help uh, the right team come together to have the right uh, goal and mission. Uh, We all have ideas, and our friends at SEA Partners have ideas of how we can be most helpful, but it is only you who ultimately know the divine appointments that you will create, and so we pray that you would go before this team now from our perspective months in advance. But God, we pray that you would prepare the way for us to continue to make a positive difference on people's lives there so that your name would be glorified and people might be saved physically and people might be saved eternally. Thank you for the work there, Father God. And much closer to home, we want to pray for our friends at the Table Church in Portland, Uh, Pastor Thomas, a good friend. And I pray, Father God, that you would continue to bless their ministry as they gather right now, actually for their worship service and pray just in talking with Thomas this past week about the ongoing uh, growth that their church is experiencing in their uh, members owning and understanding what it means to be members of a church uh, even here in Portland in the Pacific Northwest to take on the responsibility for one another to commit oneself personally not just to you as Lord and Savior but to a local church and to invest in that church and build that church and disciple other people in that church and be discipled by them we pray for the continued ownership of what it means to be members for the members at the table church. And pray that that church would grow effectively in its ministry in Portland because the members of the church are invested in one another, committed to the church, and willing to serve you and their community. And Father, I pray the same things for us, uh, last but not least, here at Harvest. Um, I pray, Father God, for real wisdom for our church leaders, our ministry staff, and our elders here at Harvest as we uh, look at where we're at now and look at where we're headed over the course of the summer and, and even beyond into this next school year. Uh, dreams we have to reach into our community, reach around the world, invest in people here, and create a place here where people can come and experience the truth of the gospel and experience the warmth of your gracious embrace. Father God, I pray that you would give us wisdom as leaders. And I pray for a commitment for each one of us who is a disciple of Jesus and calls Harvest Home, that you would help us to grow in our understanding of what you've called us to as members of this church, to be invested in those around us and to be invested in our community outside these proverbial four walls so that we would be conduits for the, the grace of the gospel, both in, in what we say and in how we live. And I pray that this would be a place where Christians come and are energized and are equipped and are encouraged and experience great freedom from sin and experience great conviction of the mission you've put us on and equipping and empowerment to live that mission out. God, it's so obvious when we read the Bible you have great plans for your church and I just pray, Father God, knowing that as as a pastor and an elder in this church I don't have enough wisdom to just make all of that happen and so we come before you humbly begging that you would bring about your purposes in this church and we delight to acknowledge that we need you to do that. So have your way in us even now as we turn our attention to what you've told us in this particular passage of scripture and how we can live it out. Father God, I pray that your spirit would pervade this place that you would bring us to conviction of sin, that you would bring us to great confidence in your forgiveness when we do repent of our sins and that you would empower the members of this church to live and speak the gospel, that we would see more and more people come to first-time faith in Christ and give themselves to you in baptism and in service and for all eternity, God, may your name be glorified in and through us. These are big asks because it's your vision and it's a big vision and we ask our big God for these things. In faith and in joy for your name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thanks, team, for leading us in musical worship. We're going to continue worshiping God. Actually, as we open the Bible and read it together, that's one of the ways that we worship, is to give ourselves fully and totally uh, to Him in worship. And then we'll continue to sing as well. Uh, It's fun to see uh, lots of familiar faces, new and old. Michael Harris is here with us again, a long-term friend of the church. Michael, it's great to have you. Michael lives on the wrong side of town. I mean, the east side of town. Um, But he works with SEA Partners and is a long-term friend of our church. He's going to be kind of leading our meeting afterwards, so it's awesome to see you. And I saw Dwight earlier. Dwight, where'd you go? There he is, way in the back. Dwight Johnson is like from, he lives on the wrong side of the ocean, okay? (laughs) But he's from Southeast Asia, one of our long-term missionaries. It's great to have you here with us again, Dwight. So it is just incredible to see people come and connect. And just want to welcome all of you here, whether you are a long-term friend of Harvest like these two guys, or maybe this is your very first Sunday. We're very grateful to have you here and hope that you experience a little bit of a taste of God's grace and his truth this morning. Uh, my name is Matt, and um, I'm a the lead pastor here at Harvest, so if I've not had a chance to meet you, I'd love a chance to do that. You heard from Jordan earlier, one of our associate pastors. We'd love to just get to know you, uh, especially if you're newer to Harvest, so hope you'll come down and say hello and give us a chance to welcome you. Uh, As a church, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, which Pastor Jordan alluded to earlier. We're going to continue that series uh, this morning in Matthew chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it and open to the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 5. And as you can see on your bulletins, the title of the sermon this morning is, Should God Care About My Private Life? Um, Clearly, by the passage of Scripture that we just saw read earlier, God does care about my private life. And the question is, should he? And um, maybe the not-so-subtle implication in that question is, why should he? Because if you're a modern American, which probably applies to just about all of us, um, I think it's right and okay for us to acknowledge that God caring about my private life might sound a little bit weird. Why should God care about my private life? Should he, and if so, why? Apparently, he does care because of the subjects that Jesus addresses in this passage of Scripture. So, why? Uh, I'd like to lead in that question with um, a hypothetical. May not seem related at first, but just bear with me. Um, If uh, you were to, like, invent your own nation from scratch and have to create a military force for that nation, and it was up to you... Uh, to determine what the basic training was going to look like for the armed services. Um, What kinds of things would you put in basic training? What do you think a soldier needs to know to be an effective soldier? Now, um, there's probably some obvious skills. They, They need to have physical fitness. They need to, like, know how to shoot a rifle and perform, like, first aid or, you know, drive a tank or fly a helicopter if that's what they're doing. Whatever. I mean, there's... There's some pretty obvious skills that even if you've never been in the military, you're like, yeah, that would probably be important stuff for a soldier to be able to do their job effectively. But in the U.S. military, some of you have firsthand experience uh, with this. I don't. I've read a lot about boot camp. I've never been through it. But in the basic training or boot camp for the U.S. military, um, they make no secret. I imagine this is true in other nations' armed forces as well about the fact that they're not really primarily intending to impart skills during your basic training or boot camp. The primary job is actually to impart a whole new mindset, to take a civilian and make them a soldier and that's a whole different mindset. What that means is that they emphasize a number of things during basic training that may not have obvious, immediate battlefield relevance. And if you look at it from the outside, you go, why do they spend so much time on that? And there's a rhyme and a reason to it. Uh, here's one example. I was just looking some of this up again this past week and was reading from a um, former Marine Corps uh, basic training or boot camp instructor talking about kind of the 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 methodology and the rhyme and reason and what and what happens uh, in boot camp he mentioned that even things like the famous day one buzz cut has very very specific and important implications for uh, new recruits coming into boot camp day one you're going to get your head shaved bald now why is that here's what this uh, this uh, former instructor said why is the haircut so important because it is a part of the erosion of individuality. That's the goal. We're trying to erode individuality. He then asks the obvious question, why should a warrior lose his individuality? It's what makes him unique, it's what makes him valuable. And then he responds, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. Individuality makes them, meaning new recruits, feel special and unique. It makes them feel that they might be above someone or something else, that they are better than orders that they might receive, that they're too good for something. He goes on to say that, look, when you're a civilian, there's certain things in life that may be totally fine. In fact, they may be good, but once you become a professional soldier, that just won't do anymore, and individuality is one of those things. You need to learn to function um, as uh, a, a a quickly and tightly uh, knit group of people, a whole corps, a unit that is operating in battlefield, sometimes life and death situations. He said, what you have to do is totally retrain the entire way that some of these 18-year-old recruits have learned to think up to this point in their lives. And so his point is that making a soldier isn't just about physical conditioning and learning how to shoot a gun. It's a holistic transformation of the way a person thinks and lives to develop the right mindset that will enable them to then not only learn skills, but function successfully in a setting that most of the rest of us as civilians will never have to. What that means is that things that are perfectly fine for civilians are counterproductive for a soldier who has to function as part of this unit. So to accomplish that transformation, the training touches on certain areas of life that you might not even think about at first. They may not have immediate relevance to the job from an outsider's perspective, but they're part of reframing a mindset. I bring that example up because I think it's a fitting image for the Sermon on the Mount, believe it or not. Because much like a military force, God is trying to make his followers, well, not combat soldiers, (laughs) he's not training us to be soldiers, but he is transforming us to be his representatives in the world. That's what we've already seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Two worlds are colliding. The world of God is invading the world of man, and we as Christian men and women are representatives of God's world in this world. And what that means is becoming his representatives is, is people who image and reflect him in every way. And so God then is interested when he's talking to his followers, men and women who are disciples of Jesus, he is interested in every area of life. Not maybe just a few specific skills like do you know how to read your Bible or do you know how to explain the gospel to somebody, as important as those things are. But he's also interested in a total transformation of the heart because that's what it takes To be one of his followers. I want to remind us that we mentioned this at the beginning of this series. Jesus addressed these teachings to people who were his disciples. That is, they had made a formal commitment of their lives to him as their Lord and Savior. They had signed up for his thing and left their old lives in the past. In other words, the teachings that we're reading are primarily addressed to Christians. people who have embraced Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life have repented of their sins and relied on him to forgive them and have identified with him through baptism as followers of Jesus. That's who he's addressing these teachings to. But he also said these things in the presence of larger crowds. Jesus wants the whole world to understand that there is a different world here, but these are primarily teachings he's giving to us as followers so that we become effective representatives of that world. We started by talking about the three key principles that help us understand everything in the Sermon on the Mount. Just briefly, I wanna walk us through these again because we're gonna see all three of them in our passage this morning. First of all, the idea that God's world is invading our world. That's the whole kind of background, the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus shows up, that is God Almighty taking on human flesh and invading human history to give us the message of the gospel of redemption. Come and repent so that you can find life and you might not have to die and be condemned for your sins for all eternity. That's his message for us. And what that means is that once we have repented and found eternal life, we have a mission. We are now his representatives. We represent the world of God in the world of man. We represent the world of life in the world of death, the world of salvation in the world of condemnation. We represent the world of holiness to a world of sin world of god's authority to a world of rebellion if you're a christian today that's your job that's your mission that is the reason for which god put us on this earth and when two worlds are colliding like this and the value system of god which so conflicts with the value system of this world are in conflict that is a messy task and so that leads us to our third principle we need christ to do this he himself is the key to each one of us living out this calling He said he came to fulfill the law for us, which means to make us the kind of people he calls us to be. So today, once again, we're going to see his calling. Here's what God calls us to be. This is what God's holiness looks like, applied to a very specific part of life. And the whole time we need Christ to give us that heart. The specific part of life, as we saw earlier that he's talking about, is sexual temptations. In verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus lays out the principle And then in the next couple of verses, he uses a couple of very um, vivid and even violent hypotheticals to illustrate how we should live the principle out. So first of all, what is the principle? Well, verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God wants his people to be free of sexual lust, is essentially what he is saying. To, to not have their lives driven by that. The temptation is going to be ever present, but that's not to define or drive our lives, it's not to shape our behavior. In other words, Jesus is doing what we saw him do last week, and we're going to see him do every week from here on out in the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking an Old Testament command that, uh, related to behavior, and he's going to drive it down to the level of attitude and heart and affections. What do I love, and what do I long for, and what am I thinking about? Not just what am I doing. When he quotes, you shall not commit adultery, he's quoting the seventh commandment. It's the seventh of the ten commandments in the Old Testament. It's very clear. And when the Bible said, you shall not commit adultery, that's an action. Experience sexual relations with somebody I'm not married to. That was the idea. Now, when the people that Jesus was talking to in the first century said, okay, so what does it mean for me to keep that commandment? What does it mean for me to live the way God wants me to live? Well, it was very simple. The leaders, they were called Pharisees in Jesus' day, the Bible teachers said, as long as you didn't actually commit the action that was prohibited, in this case, having sexual relations with somebody you're not married to, as long as you didn't do that, you're fine. You've kept the law. You're doing what God wants you to do. They had paid no attention to what was going on inside your head or what was going on inside your heart. As long as you didn't do the prohibited action, you were okay. Jesus says, no, 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 no. The heart attitude that we have is actually the main thing. And Jesus is saying it always was the main thing. You see, when he talks about uh, looking at a woman, he's speaking from the perspective of men who he was primarily addressing here as his disciples, although this equally applies to women as well. He says if a man looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's talking about a longing look, a deliberate um, decision to continue to pursue uh, a sexual fantasy, to feed sexually illicit desire. The mere temptation Uh, uh, The temptation to think of of something inappropriate sexually is not the primary issue. That's going to be there for all of us. But what Jesus is addressing here is the minute I'm tempted to think or look sexually at another person in an inappropriate way, what do I do with that temptation? And when there's this ongoing look, this feeding of inappropriate desire through entertaining and indulging in fantasies in my mind, for instance or continuing to dwell on images or sights with my eyes that I really shouldn't be looking at, I make that conscious choice. He says, once you've done that, you've actually violated the seventh commandment. In other words, here's what he's saying. When the Bible said don't commit adultery, what it really means is that a Christian should relentlessly pursue sexual purity in thoughts, affections, desires, as well as actions in what we do and don't do. Jesus says that's what God was always trying to get at, to create a people whose lives are characterized by relentlessly pursuing his holiness, not by pursuing their temptations to sin. So why does God care about our personal life? How can can Jesus say that the real goal of the law was to uh, challenge the way we think when the law, the Old Testament, simply said don't act inappropriately? Well, remember that the purpose of the law was to make the ancient Israelites a holy people. They were to be distinct from the other peoples around them and how they lived because their hearts loved God fully. That's the Old Testament for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And therefore, they would pursue him relentlessly and their lifestyles would reflect his truth and his values. You see, this is that that salt and light principle we talked about a minute ago. If I back up, this is that second one right there. Christians are to represent the world of God in this world. That's always been true. God's people are to be his representative, standing for his message and displaying his values in how we live our lives. So if my outward behavior is minimally conforming to the letter of God's law, but my heart doesn't love God or reflect his values, then my life is missing the point. At best, it's missing the point. At worst it actually makes me inconsistent and hypocritical. When God said don't commit adultery, he wasn't concerned only with behavior. He wants to create a people who yearn for him from the inside out. If I only modify my outside behavior, but my heart is not after him, my actions are saying one thing, but my affections are saying another, he says you're not being an effective representative of God. Now why does this apply to our sexual purity? Why, to go back to our question, does God care so much about our personal, private lives and what we even do with our sexual thoughts as well as actions? That's an increasingly common question in our autonomous age, and it's worth talking about for a moment, because for the better part of the last 60 years, we have undergone a cultural revolution in how we think about our personal lives in general and our sexuality in particular. This is probably not news to most of us who have been paying attention, but you think about 60 plus years, that's when pretty much all of us in this room have lived out most or all of our lives. So even though the way that Americans tend to think about our private lives and our sexuality has changed a lot in relatively recent history. It's not really recent for us experientially. It's like the only world we've ever known. We've grown up in an environment that has a very specific way of looking at one's private life, one's autonomous choices, and even one's sexual identity. Question authority was the mantra for an entire generation not that long ago any authority, government authority, business authority, religious and spiritual authority, holy books authority, (laughs) question authority. So when God says, don't do this, there was a whole generation that made a mantra out of says who? Why? Think for yourself. Don't just submit yourselves to authority, but rather define your own path. Now in that mindset, And in that era, during the 70s and the 80s, maybe even the 90s, I don't know, it's very general here, but oftentimes people would look at what the Bible says about how we're supposed to handle uh, sexuality, and it would seem archaic, you know, outmoded, old. It would seem prudish, puritanical, and that's a bad word, right? (laughs) And it would often seem somewhat even um, restrictive and a way to control people. The reaction usually was pretty hostile to the idea of biblical sexuality in the culture. But increasingly, I think the reaction to biblical sexuality in the culture is far less hostile, and it's more just mystified. It's not even worth getting worked up about, because it just doesn't, it's it's like it's incomprehensible. These days, question authority doesn't even need to be a mantra. It's so much a part of our mental furniture as Americans that we just kind of assume it, who defines who I am and what I'm about? Well, me, of course, that's so obvious it doesn't even need saying. And so along comes the Bible saying, that well, God has plans for your sexuality and it should be handled only in certain ways and not in others, and it's like, what? The younger you are, the more likely there, there, there it is that you don't even necessarily have mental categories for that growing up, at least in this part of the world. But God has actual plans for our sexuality. The Bible is very clear that God created human beings in all aspects of life, including the sexual aspect of what it means to be human, and there's a place for everything that he created. There's an intentionality and a purpose for it, just as there is a safe and appropriate place to light fires inside your house, right? You build a house so that you can have fire inside it, a fireplace or a wood stove, or some of us don't have those anymore, but you know, there's, there's actually a place for it. You light a fire in the wintertime in your wood stove and it's awesome. It's great. <laughs> it can heat your house. It can actually keep you alive and, and keep you uh, healthy in the wintertime. Uh, it can provide a warm and pleasant and relaxing environment. It can do a lot of good. But, of course, fire is indiscriminate. It'll burn anything it has access to. And if it gets out of the place that's designed for it, it can burn your house down, destroy property, even hurt or kill People, you light a fire in the fireplace; it's great. You light a fire in the middle of the living room floor; you have a big problem. Right? We know this. This is obvious. There is a place for fire that's good inside a house. And if you'd allow me for a moment to press that analogy, that's not a bad overall picture of the the Bible's teachings on human sexuality. If all of human life is that house, there's a place for sexuality. There's a fireplace to contain it, and that fireplace is called marriage. That's the place that God created for sexuality to be experienced. And when it is experienced within the confines of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, it becomes a beautiful and pleasurable part of the larger picture that marriage is designed to paint. I'll actually talk a little bit more about that next Sunday. It's a picture of the joy that only comes from being in a relationship of covenant faithfulness with God for all eternity. That's what marriage pictures And even our sexuality is a part of experiencing that joy. And the Bible says when when sex gets outside of that fireplace, if you will, it can potentially cause all sorts of problems. And so God is saying, don't, Jesus here is saying, don't commit adultery, not even in your heart. Don't even long for it. Keep your sexuality contained in the place that God designed it to be. Now, friends, you talk about two worlds colliding. This is really different. One world looks at all of life, including our sexuality, as each person's private domain to do with as they see fit. Define your own existence. The other world looks at all of life, including our sexuality, as a designed whole, each piece of which has great purpose, and it all goes together like a beautiful puzzle piece to paint a picture of who God is, and its purpose is defined by God. friends, if you're still figuring out um, what the Bible teaches or who God is, if you're newer to the Christian faith or seeking to understand what the Bible's message is, I commend you for being here this morning. And I would encourage you to, to look at even the Bible's teachings on sexuality as one of many ways that the Bible very clearly suggests our world is out of sync with Him. It's sort of like life in this world is, um, is disjointed. It's out of joint. It's not working right. The value systems are messed up. It's like we're born limping, but because it's the only way we've ever walked, we don't notice we're limping. God says we look at our lives, we look at our sexuality in a way that's different, and he's calling us to find repentance in life by coming back to him. And for those of us that are here and these are not the first time, these are not new concepts. This is not the first time we're necessarily hearing these things. For those of us who identify ourselves as disciples of Jesus, we need to remember that Jesus says, you live in the first world, but you're representatives of the second world. You're living in the rebellious world of man, but you are representatives of the holy world of God. And that touches everything in life, even the way we think about our sexuality. So that's the point our Savior is making. <laughs> the law just says don't commit adultery. What that really means, if you're my disciple, you relentlessly pursue sexual purity in thought, in affections, your desires, and in your actions, no matter what the cost, because it's worth it. So if that's the point, what do we do? Well, then Jesus turns to apply this with a couple of very vivid, violent, and shocking illustrations. Verse 29. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Because it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then another analogy that's essentially making exactly the same point. Uh, verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members, just one part of your body, than that your whole body go into hell. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> Did that get your attention? We're talking about adultery and sex. He already had my attention. I mean, come on. Why the vivid, shocking, even violent uh, imagery? Well, clearly, he's speaking metaphorically. Jesus never actually plucked out people's eyes or cut off hands, uh, nor did his followers ever do that. It's very clear that this is hyperbolic language. But he is making a very strong point. And the point is this. As followers of Jesus, we are to relentlessly pursue the greater good no matter the cost because it's worth it, because it's worth it. Reflecting our Savior in this world does not come without cost, and Jesus is very honest about that. He says, if you're one of my disciples, you pay the cost because there are certain things that may be okay for civilians that are not okay for soldiers you're serving a different role. You're part of a different unit now. And so you can't do that anymore. You now make sacrifices so that you can effectively do this job. Again, the title of our sermon, Should God Care About My Private Life? The Bible's answer is yes, because both his glory and my good depend on it. And there's an important implication of this in this whole discussion. When Jesus talks about keeping our sexuality contained to the place in life, marriage, that God designed it for, he's not actually talking about restricting our activities or our pleasures or our joy as much as he is talking about increasing our pleasures and our joy. This is about loving the greater good more, trading a lesser attraction for a much greater good, far more than it is about going without or being restrained or restricted. That's what he means when he says it's better to lose one of your members than to lose, you know, your whole body. His point is it's, it's better to deal with a short-term here-and-now sacrifice and enter heaven for all eternity than to take the easy road now and ultimately end up in hell for all eternity. Biblical sexuality isn't primarily about being restricted or doing with less, though honestly, that's how it often, I think, looks from the outside. Rather, it's about being alive and enjoying the best that God has for us. C.S. Lewis put this so well in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He said, quote, we, as human beings, are half-hearted creatures. That is, we allow ourselves to settle and find joy in lesser sinful things instead of the greater joy God gives us. He he expands on that idea. He says we kind of mess around with things like drink, meaning alcohol, and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is what's actually being offered to us. But we trade that away for just this lesser stuff here and now. We, Lewis says, are far too easily pleased. The modern version of that might read something like, we are half-hearted creatures messing around with easy sex, defining our own identity and embracing personal autonomy when infinite joy is what's being offered to us. There's no comparison between the two. That's the message of Scripture. If I don't see God's worth as ultimately beautiful, God's glory as the most incredible, praiseworthy, joy-giving thing in the universe. It is, as a matter of fact, but I often, I often don't see it that way. And if I don't see God's infinite glory as ultimately beautiful, then I'll never reach for it. Not, not from the heart, you know. If I actually think I will be genuinely happier doing some things that kind of skirt the boundaries of what God commanded, as long as I don't get too far away from him, then that's the kind of life I'm gonna live. And even when I restrict my behavior to kind of keep it in line with what God says, it's gonna be a superficial thing, not a heart thing. Jesus says this has gotta go to the heart because it's only a heart that is yearning for the glory of God that will drive a lifestyle of pursuing him and representing him. The core issue is, do I see God's infinite worth as ultimately beautiful? What Jesus is telling us here in this passage is that one of the bad results of sexual temptation is that it obscures our view of God's infinite worth. That's all implied in that pluck it out, cut it off stuff. He's like, if if you've got... and and this is an analogy, it's like if you've got a member of your body, like your right hand, and it's causing you to sin, if you can't walk past the sin without getting your hand stuck there and you just can't manage to unstick it, cut it off. (laughs) Better to go without the sin and be free because it's holding you back. And he's saying this within the context of sexual lust. What's the point? The point is that lust is one of the things that holds us back. It pulls our eyes down off of the infinite glory of God. It's not just an issue of like, is it right or is it wrong? Should I do it, shouldn't I do it? It's like, what does it do to your heart when you give in to sexual lust? Every one of us, myself included, has experienced that multiple times in our lives. And we could probably testify experientially to the truth of what's being communicated here. Feeding sexually immoral thoughts, by what we watch, what we listen to, the thoughts uh, that we choose to indulge in and so forth, what it does is it actually shrinks our vision. It it sort of causes our view of life to just sort of implode and collapse in on itself, and it makes us see life in very narrow and small terms. For example, continually feeding sexual lust reduces our time horizons. It becomes very difficult to think about the eternal payoff of heaven when our whole life is about here and now. Now, And what pleasure can I receive in the moment? And continuing to feed sexual lust trains us to think the second way, not the first way. It becomes really hard to see the glories of heaven when my whole mind is oriented toward what can I get right now. That's one of the ways it shrinks us. It also shrinks our goals. If I'm a Christian and I read the Bible over and over and over again, my heart is being thrown forward. The vision of my heart is being thrown forward into eternity where I will be received by my maker with a well-done, good and faithful servant. And there's no greater payoff than to be in the presence of a holy God. And all of the payoff of having lived for him and served him finally comes home to roost. My faith becomes sight. And the Bible is trying to inflame my heart with a yearning for that day so that I live for that payoff. That's my goal. But sexual lust, when I feed it, trains my heart and my mind to think about instant gratification. What can I have right now to sort of self-medicate my frustrations and my anxieties and feed my ego and get pleasure right now? And it sort of just trains our hearts to constantly think about instant gratification, not long-term payoff. It shrinks our time horizons. It reduces our goals. And one other thing, it flattens our view of other people. Kind of a day in, day out basis, this may be one of the most destructive things that sexual lust can do, does do in our hearts and minds when we continue to feed it. It flattens our view of other people. It causes us to see other people increasingly as kind of two dimensional, grayscale means to the end of my own gratification rather than three dimensional richly colored and complex image bearers of God that they are. All of whom have unique individuals, uh, personal names, personal, personal stories. They have wonderful, complicated, and messy histories, all of which can be learned and related to and loved and served. But you see, sexual lust kind of just avoids all of that. It just see your body I just see what I imagine I can enjoy about it. And I don't see you as a person with a name and a history bearing the image of God. In all of these ways and so many more, sexual lust, when we feed it, shrinks us. It just makes us such small people. And so Lewis says we are far too easily pleased. God is offering us infinite joy. Jesus says, If you're part of my family, you have a greater joy than that. So don't let the temptations that we all experience towards sexual lust shrink you down. But instead, we desperately need to have a new heart. He's being very practical here. Although he doesn't list specific situations, he's being very practical. When he says, Pluck out the eye and cut off the hand, he's talking about actions, he's talking about the way we live our lives as we turn the corner for home, let me suggest a couple of ways to think about perhaps what our Lord is telling us here. How to um, put some feet on this idea of plucking out the eye or cutting off the hand. What what does that look like or what does that mean? I want to just suggest at least a couple of things to get us started in thinking. First of all, it means we need to rely on Christ for that new heart that we saw back at the beginning. Remember, the Three principles that are driving everything Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. Two worlds are colliding. Yeah, we feel that collision. If I'm a disciple of Jesus, I represent his world to this world. But remember that third one. Christ himself is the key to making that happen. I know the sinful tendencies of my own heart. I know the propensities I have towards sexual lust. I cannot whip that on my own. I think if we're going to take pluck out your eye and cut off your hand seriously it starts with stopping (laughs) before god for a moment and just coming before my savior and saying god you there's nothing hidden from your sight you know my heart you know even better than i do you know where my tendencies lie here you know where i tend to be okay and i can sort of fight off sexual lust but you also know the areas where i'm really really weak and so i need you it, it, it starts with being honest with God and confessing where we know we sin, praying for his forgiveness, and then not only just being forgiven and put back in a neutral place with God where we're no longer in trouble, but being put in a positive place and saying, Jesus, would you begin to change my heart? Would you perform a radical surgery, removing my sinful heart and giving me the new heart? The Spirit of God Almighty is in you if you're a Christian. Think about that. The Spirit of God Almighty is in you. If you're a Christian, cooperate with Him. Submit to Him and ask for that new heart. So we need to rely on Christ to have that heart. And secondly, we need to act. We need to pluck out the eye, cut off the hand. As crazy as that sounds, what might that look like? Well, it could probably look hundreds of ways. It could look like, for example, considering um, the entertainment that we constantly expose ourselves to and where we're going to draw lines on what we watch and participate in versus what we don't. Cutting off a right hand might mean passing on that movie that my friends are going to go see and I'm like, yeah, I probably could, but I just know that's not going to be good for me. And dealing with their strange looks at me like, what's wrong with you? In the grand scheme of things, that's a fairly small price to pay, but you know, in the moment, that can be hard to do. It can be a little bit like cutting off your hand. It's interesting that when it comes to issues like this, and I don't have a lot of specifics of like what I think you should and should not do in terms of your entertainment, because <laughs> I think God expects us all to sort of work that stuff out. Although it's interesting that as Christians, when we start talking about these kinds of things, what should Christians watch or not watch, or read or not read, or do or not do, um, they often devolve fairly quickly into kind of um, sporting intramural in-house debates. At least I hope they're sporting. Sometimes (laughs) they may be a little bit more hostile, because invariably some Christians are like, hey, if we take God's word seriously, you got to draw really, really tight lines, right? And that can then sometimes lead us to say things like, well, you know, no Christians should ever under any circumstances watch an R-rated movie pg-13 movie let's be honest have you seen what qualifies as pg-13 these days if you're a christian and you're watching that stuff you know you're not taking jesus commands seriously you know and then it starts to feel kind of constrained and legalistic and then there's sort of this other group of christians that increasingly looks at that group and says hey who are you to tell me i'm not okay with this You know, we start looking up all those passages about meat sacrificed to idols in the New Testament and and sort of in the name of Christian freedom, it's like, this is not a clear sin and in my conscience, I'm okay with this, so I'm going to do this. And then you can sometimes end up with another group of Christians who are almost proudly displaying their uh, willingness to engage in all sorts of things that are considered taboo by other Christians in the name of Christian freedom. And it can become a little bit difficult in between to figure out, where are we supposed to draw these lines? Well, I don't have the magic answer for you. Here's what I do have. I would start with the suggestion that it may be that both groups are starting with the wrong question. The wrong question is, what is or is not permissible for me as a Christian? I think that comes from a good place. Most of the time we ask that question, I think we have good motives. I would suggest humbly that that is not the right question to start with. And the reason I don't think it's the right question is because it's another way of saying, even if this isn't what we mean to say, what we're saying is how far away from the burning hot center of God's glory can I go and still be okay with God? It's the perpetual question of legalism. Where should that line be drawn and how far can I go? And whether you draw that line really tight or whether you draw it relatively loose, I think both Christians are potentially asking the wrong question because we're pointed the wrong way. God's glory is in the rearview mirror and we're looking at how far away it's okay to go. Why would you be pointed away from God's glory? I think that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Better to lose one member and gain glory than lose it all. Turn and look at where you're headed. The right question may be something more like, what will help me see God as the most beautiful thing there is? If I'm a Christian, what will help me see God as as the most beautiful thing there is. That doesn't mean that all of my entertainment has to have explicitly religious or biblical themes in it. There's a lot of common grace stuff out there I can watch or read or participate in, and it may help me appreciate God more as the giver of all good things. Or it might train me to find pleasure in lesser things, like mere hedonistic self-gratification, and personal autonomy. What is going to help me love God more? I'd submit we ask that question as we seek where we're going to draw lines on some of our uh, media, entertainment, and recreational activities. There may be some hands to cut off there, some things to let go of. Some, some television shows I kind of got hooked on because the plot was interesting and I sort of fell in love with the characters, but ooh, they're putting so much stuff in there that's just not helpful and I'm thinking about all kinds of sexually inappropriate stuff once I've turned it off and I've got a choice to make. Do I give it up or do I continue to press through that? I and mean, these are questions, this is where the stuff gets worked out. What am I pursuing? Secondly, and more briefly, two other thoughts. What cutting off the head or plucking, uh, cutting off the eye, hand, maybe cutting off the head, I don't know, Fortunately, he didn't say cut your head off. He just stopped with the eye. Okay, anyway, cutting off the hand (laughs) or plucking out the eye may look like. um, It may look like owning up to where I blow it to a couple of key trusted Christian friends, probably same gender ones, It may mean owning up to where I blow it because every single Christian in this room, every member of our staff, every elder on our elder board, every member of this church has blown it in terms of sexual temptation. We are all tempted that way and we all at times have given in and pursued and fed sexually inappropriate thoughts when we should not have. Cutting off the right hand might mean admitting that I have an addiction to internet porn something that the people in Jesus' day never had to worry about. Oh, they had their own forms of hidden, sexual, hidden sexually illicit behavior. But the ease of access this day with technologies these days is unbelievable. And the amount of pressure that that puts on us as Christians to live morally upright lives, to reflect our Savior, is intense. I can't do that alone. Maybe I'm hooked on internet porn or erotica novels and films. Men, women, young, old, long-term Christians, new Christians, these things are issues for every one of us. I would... I would hope, I would dream that within our church we would form relationships with one another that reach a sufficient level of trust that I could finally pull aside one or two brothers if I'm a guy or sisters if I'm a lady and be able to say, this is honestly what I'm wrestling through and I wish I was having more victory over it right now, but I'm not. Will you pray for me and will you help hold me accountable because I want to beat this thing. I need God and I need you. And that when somebody said that, we would be like, awesome. Thank you for being real. By the way, I think a lot of us are already in that place. But when I'm the one that's pondering whether I'm going to confess that to somebody, I'm afraid they won't be. I'm afraid I might get looked at weird. I'm afraid I might be ashamed or humiliated. I'm afraid that I might be condemned. But you know what? That's a little bit like cutting off the right hand, isn't it? Because if I'm honest with myself, if I've got a struggle in this area and I'm failing and I know, here's a brother in Christ I should go talk to, and I just choose not to talk to him because of my shame, what I'm really saying is I don't want to be seen by him as a failure, right? I don't want to be ashamed. In other words, I'm holding on to what? Pride, really. And, and, and my continued holding on to pride is keeping me trapped in that sexual sin no matter how hard I pull away. Jesus says, cut off the hand and be free. Maybe plucking out the higher eye or cutting off the hand means just leveling with somebody and saying, I'm not the super Christian that I guess I wish you saw me as. <laughs> That's all right. None of us are. Lastly, plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand may mean fencing myself in my own behavior. And what I mean by that is I'm primarily thinking here of, of our, our modern technology, although this has other applications too our phones, our tablets, our computers. So portable, so wireless, so connected everywhere all the time. So cool, so useful, so dangerous, all at the same time. Fencing myself might mean simple things like I only use my computer, um, you know, out in a public area, like out in the living room with my family or my roommates or whatever, when people can see what I'm, I'm looking at. Do I really need that thing in my bedroom by myself so that I can surf the web alone and nobody's looking? It's not always wrong. Is it really needed? Maybe it means putting accountability software on your devices. That's something my family has done. There's several uh, programs out there on the market. We use one of them. It like logs where I go on the Internet, and it sends a monthly report to my wife. And if there's a page that the software is like, yeah, I don't know if that was okay, it like flags it, you know. And it's, it's, it's wonderfully refreshing to realize that like, oh, if I click somewhere and like two weeks from now, I may have to explain to my wife what that was or wasn't. Sometimes it's wonderfully refreshing to say, did I really need to click there? Nah. Or <laughs> other times I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And we could talk about it. Either way, it's like, can I, can I open myself up to somebody else? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a brother, sister in Christ, a close friend. Maybe it's a parent. Would I be willing to submit myself to let somebody like watch what I do either in real time or through some kind of accountability program or whatever other form it takes? And, and if I'm not interested in doing that as a Christian, if I'm like, I don't want... No way! Question, where's that coming from? Is that a desire for Independence? Is that a desire for autonomy and self-determination? I want to do what I want, when I want to do it, and I don't want to have to answer to anybody? It's usually what it looks like in me. It's pride, again, it comes back down to it. You see why Jesus is driving this from the behavior level down to the heart? He says that's where all the behavior comes from in the first place. So maybe, I need to, maybe the right hand I need to cut off is my, a little bit of my autonomy. I'm going to give a little bit of that up because it's not that important to me. It's not as important as pursuing the burning hot center of God's glory and representing him. Well, friends, we're out of time. Plucking out an eye, cutting off a hand could take any one of millions of forms. I I want to encourage the members of our church this week, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, and this is your home church especially, to consider how we represent and reflect our God. And it may well be that every single one of us needs to do some serious thinking about Whether or not we're plucking out eyes and cutting off hands. That is so weird to say, okay? But Jesus said it, I'm gonna keep going with it. (laughs) Whether we're doing those in the right places. I wanna encourage us to think about those things and talk about them this week, but I also wanna remind us that we all desperately need not only one another, but we need our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because every person, every Christian, has failed in this area of sexual lust and temptation. So many of us have fallen for the lie, for example, when we were younger and single, that once we get married um, and we're able to have sex with a spouse, like all of our sexual problems and temptations will go away. Won't that be wonderful? How many of us have learned that that's not the case either? No, no, no. The sexual temptation comes from the heart. It's always there. The issue isn't whether or not it's there. The issue is what do we do to deal with it? And that's where we need to come to our holy God who is loving, and he says, I'm going to raise the standard so you see how far short you fall of it. But then I'm also going to tell you that I am the one who's come to fulfill the law. I'm the one who's come to make you the kind of person that I'm calling you to be. Find your forgiveness in me. Find your hope in me. And find the power to overcome and live for the world of Christ and live the truth of the gospel in my spirit living in you. There's great hope and freedom God has for every one of us to answer the call that he's given to us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the hope and the freedom that we do have in Christ. The freedom to recognize that, yeah, when we open up the Bible, we are tempted to tame the requirements of the law. We are tempted to minimize them so that we can feel good about whether or not we've kept them, but Jesus, you don't let us minimize them. You raise the bar. And then just before we're crushed under the weight of our failure, You put your arm around us and you lift us up. Father God, every single one of us in this room, myself first and foremost, can think of many specific times, some of them far more recently than I would like to admit, where I know I have blown it in the areas of sexual lust. I have fed illicit desires in my thinking and in my heart when I know I should not have. So, Father, I pray that you would create within our congregation a great freedom to just exhale. (laughs) emotionally, and acknowledge that we are sinners in need of grace. You've told us that from the beginning. And then to be confident of your love in embracing us and pulling us up, leading us to the place that is higher than where we are. Fill your people, God, I pray with your spirit this morning, giving us the heart to confess to one another, the relationships to be able to let one another know where we need prayer, where we need encouragement. I pray that there would be great freedom found in the fact that you have come to fulfill the law, be for us what we could not be and make us what you want to make us. Make us a holy people who reflect you, Father God, that more and more people would see that you are calling us to get from the out-of-joint world into your world, calling us to repent of our sins and find life. Communicate that message through us even as we experience your freedom as your people. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.